And welcome, everyone, to the Court of Appeals. Your panel this morning, uh, I'm Judge Donna Stroud, uh, Chief Judge. Uh, to my right, we have Judge uh, Jeffrey Carpenter. To my left, we have Judge Julie Flood. And uh, we have two cases for argument today as our first case is ready to proceed. Uh, we're going to take a little break after our first arguments because we have to switch out on our panel uh, for uh, one of the judges. So we'll do that after that. And um, have you already, did you wish to reserve five minutes for a rebuttal? Have you already yeah, set that? Ten minutes. Or ten minutes. You've already set that for ten minutes. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure you already had that arranged uh, with the clock since it's set up there and I don't control it. So, all right. Well, we're ready to proceed with our first case. Uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Craig Cooley. I represent the applicant, uh, Carl Colt. And uh, in his brief, I raised two issues. And if the court doesn't have any direction it would like to go, I could argue the first one and the second one. Uh, Mr. Colt's case is a straightforward case regarding the charge count of concealment of death of a child. And if you look at the state's evidence against Mr. Colt, it's really based solely on his two statements, one being from uh, February 15th, 2018, and the other one being from March 27th, uh, 2018. And the first thing I raised was it, it's basically a sufficiency claim based on the corpus delicti rule, where the argument is that, yes, Mr. Colt gave these statements, but what did the state present to corroborate those statements? That the child, in this case, Kaysen, was in fact dead. And, you know, that Mr. Colt knew not only that Kaysen was dead, but that he also died of unnatural causes. And in my brief, which I uh, cited to the record, ADA Weddell listed I believe 17 different facts that he believed strongly corroborated uh, his confession. And if you look at Parker and the corpus delecti role, you know, the state can rely on a defendant's statements for a conviction, but they have to introduce evidence, independent evidence that strongly corroborates the defendant's statement, and it gives the defendant's statement uh, an air of trustworthiness. And if you look at the 17 fa facts that ADA Weddell I mean, argued during, the, uh, during trial, and again, this went back and forth, and uh, trial counsel did a great job preserving it at every level, state, federal, constitutional level. And, but if you look at the 17 facts, most of these facts are insignificant or not connected to the crime. And if you read Parker and the cases uh, that Parker, uh, there after Parker's decided, they repeatedly say that the strong corroboration must be on facts that are significant to the crime or the commission of the crime. And, you know, I'm just going to go through uh, these 17 facts. And again, most of the facts are insignificant. Now, there are, I believe, like eight facts that have some relevance. But once you get over the relevance issue, you have to look at the corroboration issue. So like the first 
fact that ADA Weddle mentioned is that Mr. Colt and Jared, so if you know the players in the case, Kayla Clement is the mother, Jose uh, Jimmer, Jimerson is the father of Kaysen, and after Kaysen's born, you know, Kayla moved in with her sister for a couple months until about April of 2016. Sandy kicks her out for alleged drug use, and uh, Miss Clement and her boyfriend, Philip Joff, move in with Jared Green at 328 uh, Hill Loop Road. And at the time, my client, Mr. Colton, Jared are in a relationship. And Jared and Mr. Colt spends weekends uh, at 328 Hill Loop Road, which is a, the house that Jared rents and where Kayla and Philip stay with Kaysen. And one of the facts that ADA Weddle pointed out was that, you know, during this time period, Jared and Mr. Colt hung out together. And that's true, but again, well, how does that relate to A, Kaysen being dead, and B, Mr. Colt knew he was dead, and then C, he knew he died from unnatural causes. Again, there's really no relevance to this alleged crime. Uh, you know, A.D. Weddell said that Mr. Colt uh, conceded that, quote, the child was Kayla's child. Well, that's true. Again, the question is, how is that a significant fact relating to the commission of the crime? It isn't. Uh, Jose, Kaysen's father, and Agent Barnes both identified Kaysen's birthday as March 11, 2016. Again, this is a true fact, but does it have any relevance to the crime? It, it does to the extent that how he was charged, he was charged with you know, concealing the death of a child. So yes, he is a child, and the way it's defined under the statute is a child is under 16 years old. So the date of birth does have some relevance, but Again, it doesn't really add anything to whether, you know, Mr. Colt knew that Kaysen was dead or how he died. And again, I, I remind the court that they have never found Kaysen. <coughs> There's no evidence. The, the only evidence that he did die comes from, you know, Kayla and her guilty plea, which I'll get to in, in the second claim. Uh, but there's really no evidence what happened to this child, if he is in fact dead, how he died, what was the manner of death, cause of death, there's nothing in the record in Mr. Colt's case establishing any of that. Uh, you know, Ms. ADA Weddle mentioned the fact that, you know, Jared and his parents moved to Florida after the fact. Again, that's just an irrelevant fact. Uh, there was a lot of talk about Hurricane Matthew, and if you look at Mr. Colt's statements, he suggested that, quote unquote, this all happened sometime shortly after Hurricane Matthew. In the, in the record, the court took judicial notice, Hurricane Matthew hit on October 9th, 2016. But again, there's really no nexus between that date or, you know, when Kaysen went missing. Uh, ADA Weddle mentioned the fact that my client drove a Toyota Corolla Again, that's just irrelevant. Uh, that Mr. Colt was able to accurately describe 328 Hill Loop Road. Again, no, all these facts just really have nothing to do with the commission of the crime. If there was, in fact, a crime, uh, 
you know, yes, the, Mr. Colt stayed at Jared's house from Thursday to Sundays on the, during the fall of 2016. Again, a lot of these facts are just irrelevant to the question. So my argument is they can't be used you know, to bolster ADA Weddell's claim that Mr. Colt's statement is strongly corroborated and it's trustworthy. Council, if we're looking sure. under the totality of the circumstances and in light of all those facts that you're going through that you say are irrelevant um, that defendant provided to the investigators and then the investigators were able to corroborate those facts, um, how can you still argue that it's insufficient to somehow engender the belief in the overall truth of what the defendant has confessed to? What when you say they corroborated, what did they corroborate, I guess, is my question. Many of those facts that you said, what he drove, where people lived, what um, some of the things, some of the items that were found, um, there, there were a lot of facts that were actually true facts that would be enough to at least um, engender some sort of belief in the truthfulness of the defendant and, and thus in his confession. Well, I... And I agree with you that, yeah, did he drive a Corolla? Yes. Did he hang out with Jared during those periods? Yes. But in terms of corroborating the commission of the crime, I think is the focus that under Parker that needs to, be, needs to happen when you're looking at like a corpus delecti type claim is like the, the facts you're mentioning. Well, let's talk about the facts that were, uh, the, or the evidence that was collected from the campsite. Right? So we have the playpen. S6 and S6A, and you know, the, the, that's just irrelevant because what Agent Barnes didn't do, he didn't show the playpen to Sandy, the sister, and Sandy saw Kaysen in a playpen, but when they collected that from the campsite, they didn't go, hey Sandy, we have this, is this the playpen that Kaysen was in? Well, they didn't go to the father, Jose. There was no, they didn't try to corroborate that way, A. And then B, they had Kayla and they had Jose. They could have collected DNA from them. And they could have tested that playpen. And it's, you know, I worked at the Innocence Project in New York City for five years. A playpen would have had a tremendous amount of DNA from a child because of slobbering. Just, it's like, it's like a pair of pants. You put on a pair of pants, it's called wear. DNA. We're going to find DNA around, around the, uh, the pant waist. A playpen would be a tremendous item to test. And they just didn't do it. And moreover, if you look at how Sandy described the playpen, she said the playpen that Kayla had for Kaysen, it wouldn't, there was something wrong with it. And it wouldn't stand up straight. It was always wobbling. But the playpen they collected or found at this campsite had no problems, right? So all those, so that's just the playpen. Same thing with the Hello Kitty fabric. There was no corroboration from anybody that, you know, that was tied to Kaysen or they found an inflatable toy and uh, they found uh, inflatable toy, Hello Kitty, playpen. But the, all four items were not connected. A. And then more importantly, if the child was buried there, and again, this is from his first statement. This is from the 2015 statement. 
if he was in fact buried there, they brought cadaver dogs. They didn't find any evidence of human remains. Right? And that's the other thing. So there's really no, they found these items and they presented them at trial like, hey, look what we found, but there's no corroboration. And again, if you read Parker, there has to be strong corroboration and there just wasn't any. This is just a prosecutor putting up a playpen, knowing what that type of piece of evidence is gonna draw, what inference. So here's a child, there's testimony that the child was in a playpen, we found a playpen, let's just introduce it and let's, the inference is gonna be clear to the jury that this is in fact a playpen, but there's no evidence that it was in fact a playpen. And the fact that the SBI didn't go take additional steps to confirm that, right, Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. That's basically what happened is Agent Barnes didn't go to Jose or Sandy, the two best like fact witnesses to corroborate that. So in regards to the campsite evidence, I don't believe they strongly corroborate anything. They just, they went there based on Mr. Colt's first statement, which he's theorizing. If you read what, he's uh, what he tells them, he's, Really, like, I don't know, they, they hang out at the, camp, the campsite a lot. They might have buried them there. So, you know, next day, February 16th, 2018, they go to the campsite. And again, there's just simply nothing found. So they go back to them again on March 28th, uh, on March 27th, 2018. And now he gives the grasshopper narrative. Like, you know, well, we did go to Grasshopper's place and we had the baby carrier and the baby carrier had a blanket over it. And the child was in the baby carrier. Now we, me, Kayla, and Jared got out, went into Grasshopper's house. But you know, Philip remained behind with the baby carrier. And then we come back out into the car, and you know, Cation's gone apparently, and the blanket's not covering it anymore. And so they go, they never even checked Grasshopper's property. All right. So if you look at all these facts. Like even the facts where he says the last time he saw Cason, like his head was twice the size, he looked to be in a vegetative state, uh, maybe Kayla sh shook the baby to death. Again, that's like a false confession. I've worked many false confessions. I work, with the Innocence Project, I work many of them. And this is just somebody throwing out ideas and again, they can be used against him. I'm not saying you can't use it against them. I'm saying that if that's all you have, under Parker, there has to be other independent evidence outside of the defendant's statement that strongly corroborates that there was, in fact, a crime. And here, I just don't believe we, we've met that because what evidence is there that he had a that his head was twice the size of a normal child? Outside of his own statement, there's no evidence, right? What evidence is there that Kayla killed Kaysen? I mean, we know she pled guilty to it, but and she took an Alfred plea. Uh, but that's the point, is really each fact that ADA Weddle argued, I believe is insufficient under the corpus electi role. So, well, let me ask, so was there any evidence that she had pled guilty to murder of this child. Presumably. Yeah, and that we can veer into claim two now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that was a big issue in the case is that, you know, that one of the key elements of this is obviously that Kaysen is dead because the whole 
crux of the charge is concealment of death of a child. And ADA Weddle created his own problem. You know, ADA Weddle could have called Kayla. She did plead guilty. She took an offer plea to uh, being the person responsible for Kaysen's death. And, you know, once you take that Alfred plea, there's no Fifth Amendment right. You've not, there's no jeopardy. And so he could have brought her in there, put her on the stand and said, you know what, this is how we did it. And, yeah, Mr. Colt knew. We asked him not to say anything. He did us a favor by not saying anything. Eddie Weddle could have done that. But if you do that, you get to confront Kayla. And, again, I'm not, there's not a lot of evidence in the record, but Kayla does not seem to be the most credible witness so I'm assuming that's why ADA Weddle did not produce and present Kayla. Instead, he wanted, but he did want the, the jurors to know why she wasn't there. And that it created that back and forth between trial counsel and ADA Weddle, where again, trial counsel did a, a tremendous job preserving the issue, both under state law and federal law. And he's right. You simply want to tell the jury that Kayla's in prison for second degree murder, but you don't want to tell them, you don't want to create a nexus, right? And that's where the, I make three different types of arguments. One is a relevancy argument, one is a 403 argument, one is a confrontation argument. And the first one is simply a relevance. If you're not going to tie that second degree murder guilty plea to Kaysen's death, why is it even being introduced in Mr. Colt's case? What fact of consequence does it address, particularly regarding the elements of the case? So the jurors know, like, well, why isn't Kayla here? Right? It doesn't address anything. It just, and A.J. Whittle knows, and we all should know, like, what inference they're going to draw. Like, here's the mother, here are the, all these players, and this woman pled guilty to the second-degree murder. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize what inference the jury's going to draw. They're going to draw that Mom killed Case and Mr. Colt knew about it. Conviction. That's, that's that simple. And that's why trial counsel was so adamant that it was impermissible. Right? And again, I keep emphasizing this. A.D. Weddle created his own problem. He complained. He tried to rationalize it based on trial counsel's questions during Vordier. I believe it's pages 299 to 301 in the transcripts. And again, the way they charged him, trial counsel was unsure what they were going to present. Right? There were a lot of players, people hanging out together, Kayla, Philip, Jared, Mr. Colt. So he asked some questions about acting in concert and whether jurors could you know, fairly apply that type of instruction. And then when this all came up at trial, A.D.A. Weddle was like, well, you know, because of these questions, I should get the right to tell the juror, jury why Kayla isn't here. Well, no, he doesn't. Because Kayla's not there because he purposely chose not to present her. You can't create the problem and then complain about the problem. And that's exactly what he did. It's just, I mean, one of the more intellectually dishonest things I've seen a prosecutor do is you could have called her. He didn't call her, then he starts complaining about, well, the jury needs to know where she's at. Right? He could have called her. He didn't. It was irrelevant the way they presented it. He knew why. Everybody in that courtroom knew why he wanted Agent Barnes to tell the jury that Kayla was in prison for second-degree murder. 
Because at that, the one element, one of the key elements of the, uh, of the charge count is that Kaysen is dead. And Mr. Colt knew he had died and died of unnatural causes. And again, there's no evidence outside of that testimony from Agent Barnes that even remotely touches upon whether Kaysen is dead. There's no physical evidence. They've never found his body. They have no, never figured out how he died, where he died, when he died, and like why, the motive. So for, those, for that reason, it's irrelevant. Even if it had some relevance, it's still unduly prejudicial, and then it creates a confrontation clause issue because now Agent Barnes is, the inference that the jury was going to draw from that testimony, I think, created a confrontation issue because it is. You're, you're backdooring, you're trying to backdoor a critical fact to a critical element. And, you know, Mr. Colt was not able to confront Kayla about that secondary murder and whether, you know, A, did he know anything about it? And with that, I have 10 minutes left. I'll reserve that for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, may it please the court. My name is Marissa Jensen. I'm with the North Carolina Department of Justice here on behalf of the state in this matter. Um, Mr. Cooley has talked a lot about um, things such as whether the playpen in this case was DNA tested, whether the evidence was DNA tested, what the motive was for killing Kaysen, whether physical remains were located. Um, but that's, none of that is what this case is actually about. This case is about simply whether there is strong corroboration of essential facts and circumstances embraced in the defendant's confession. And based on the evidence in this case, I would urge this court to look at all of the reasons why there, there were strong corroboration of essential facts and circumstances embraced in Mr. Colt's confession in this case. And I think that the approach here that the defendant takes is flawed by looking at these 17 different pieces of evidence and analyzing them piece by piece in a vacuum. If we look at the case law and we look at particularly the standard of review and, and how we're viewing this evidence in the light most favorable to the state um, and the fact that the state gets the benefit of all reasonable inferences drawn from the evidence, when we look at all of the evidence here in light of the standard of review for a motion to dismiss, um, certainly all of that evidence rises above the level of strong corroboration of essential facts and circumstances embraced in the defendant's confession. And I think one of the biggest things here in this case and the most significant things um, was law enforcement's search of the campsite after the defendant's statement um, not only describing the residents in detail, describing the campsite in detail, um, in connection with these events. He, he gives this detailed timeline of events. Um, he describes the residents as a small cinder block residence with a campsite across the street. He even goes so far as to say, you can see the opening from the road, but you can't see back into the campsite from the road. 
And, and yes, he theorized that this is a place where they could have disposed of Kaysen's remains. Um, and, and to corroborate the truthfulness of that statement, law enforcement goes out and does a search of this area, and they, they locate um, baby items. They locate four different baby items, not, not a multitude of items, which also lines up with one of the defendant's statements in his interview that he said they didn't have a lot of items for the baby to begin with. That's another thing that corroborates his statement. But what they do find is this playpen, um, which is corroborated by other witnesses' testimony in the case. Sandy Clements, um, Kayla Clements' sister, described how when Kayla and Kaysen lived with her, Kaysen stayed a lot of time in this Graco playpen. She described it. Um, the fact that there was not a specific piece of testimony from her or from anyone saying this was the playpen that Kaysen stayed in um, doesn't mean that it's not strong corroboration of a, an essential fact and circumstance. That would have been an essential item uh, that was involved in the commission of this crime, that was involved in these, these timeline of events surrounding this incident. The playpen is an essential item in the commission of the crime? I would, I would say so, Your Honor, because according to the defendant's statement, that was, in fact, the place that he first saw Kaysen when he described his severe injuries. Um, and in all of his statements, he was very consistent about that, that he, when he saw Kaysen, he was in this pack-and-play playpen, and that he was severely injured, and that's where his description comes in about um, his, his injuries to his head, how deformed his head looks, how he was having trouble breathing, how he was in a vegetative state. And defendant, uh, defendant has made much of the fact that there is no corroboration of those items, right? That's one of the arguments here is that um, th there was no corroboration of Kaysen's injuries and in fact there were no physical remains found. But I think it's important to remember that the elements of this crime, this crime is failure to notify law enforcement of the death of a child who did not, not die of natural causes. And the state has to prove four elements beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when we're looking at it, obviously there has to be substantial um, evidence of each of those elements. The defendant failed to notify law enforcement of the death, that he intended to conceal the death, that the victim was a child under 16, and that he concealed the death knowing or having reason to know that the victim did not die of natural causes. And so those are the things that there needs to be substantial evidence of. There does not need to be substantial independent evidence that Kaysen's head was deformed or that he was in a vegetative state when the defendant saw him. And I think it's, it's significant in that regard to, to remember the Messer case, State v. Messer. Um, in, in which this court held that the state does not need independent evidence of each element of the crime to show that the defendant's confession was trustworthy. And, and it's a similar, the defendant made a similar argument in that case to the one that the defendant makes in this case because in that case that was a felony murder with robbery as a, with a dangerous weapon as the underlying felony. And the only proof that the defendant took $100 from the victim in that case was the defendant's own statement. And the defendant in that case was trying to argue that, well, there needs to be independent proof of that. He, that we don't have enough proof just based on his statement alone that he took $100. And this court held um, that that was not the case. Um, the, the defendant's argument would, in fact, require non-confessional evidence of every element of a, of a crime to be submitted to a jury. And that's, that's just not what the law is. Um, and so going back to the 
uh, law enforcement's location of those items at the scene, I think that's one of the most significant pieces of corroborating evidence in this case. Um, the defendant went through more statements um, and, and again, tries to emphasize why these are insignificant or not important. I would argue to the court that these very much are significant and important facts. Um, for example, even the defendant's statements that Kayla and Philip were a couple, when he identifies Kaysen as the baby that he actually saw in the playpen in a photo, these are all things, again, that are integrally connected to the commission of this crime. These are the people that are involved. These are the events that are involved. These are the places that are involved. The fact that um, the, the, his timeline of events matches up with uh, Kaysen's father's timeline of events. The testimony was that Mr. Jimenez had not seen Kaysen since, I believe it was September or October of 2016. And in defendant's statements, he describes this timeline of events as when he saw Kaysen severely injured was, as the defendant stated, um, right around the time that Hurricane Matthew passed through North Carolina. And the court takes judicial notice of that. Agent Barnes is able to confirm that, that that was on or about October 9th of 2016. Again, this is very important. This is significant corroboration of essential facts and circumstances because this is the timeline of Kaysen's disappearance. This is the timeline where he is seen to be severely injured um, at the hands of Kayla, um, with Kayla, with Philip in this house that the defendant describes. Um, the fact that the defendant helped Jared move out of his house and that Jared and his family moved down to Florida, that's significant because again, you have this timeline of events where all of these things happened in the fall of 2016. Um, and, and in fact, Jared was the one who was renting the house. Again, the, the location that the crime, this crime took place. Also the fact that uh, the defendant states that he was driving this 2016 Toyota Corolla. Why is that significant? That's significant because that is the location, potentially the defendant describes this scenario where they went to go buy more drugs from a woman named Grasshopper, which Agent Barnes was also to, able to confirm that there was a woman named Sonia Mendez who went by the name Grasshopper who had sold methamphetamine before. And he describes this incident where Kayla and Philip come out with a baby carrier that's covered by a blanket, get into the car that he's driving, which is this 2016 Toyota Corolla, which Agent Barnes is able to confirm and corroborate, um, and they go to Grasshopper's house. And, and the defendant does theorize, because he doesn't know for sure, um, that is perhaps where they disposed of Kaysen's remains. And, and I want to point out, I think it's significant that the fact, again, the fact that physical remains were not located in this case um, is, is not relevant to the inquiry of whether the corpus delecti challenge was properly denied. The, obviously, you don't need a body to provide substantial evidence of death, um, and, and, the, and the case law in North Carolina tells us that. Um, specifically, State v. Parks, State v. Head, um, those are both cases where this court has affirmed a trial court denial of a motion to dismiss uh, where physical remains were never found. And I think that's notable because particularly in State v. Head, um, this court noted that circumstantial evidence of the victim's disappearance and the unlikelihood of that disappearance 
was certainly sufficient to establish the death of the victim, even where those physical remains were never found. Um, and that's the same situation here. No, Kaysen's remains were never found, but we also know the timeline of events. We know that um, they weren't looking for Kaysen's remains until well after uh, he was killed. Um, and the, the timeline and the space of time and the fact that this was an infant when he was killed um, and that he would have been not more than two years old when they were actually looking for him and the fact that obviously an infant or a two-year-old child cannot survive on their own. Um, this is all evidence of his death, uh, albeit circumstantial. But as we know, as the law tells us, circumstantial and direct evidence weigh the same. And in fact, the, the test is the same, even under a motion to dismiss. Um, but going back to uh, more of this strong corroboration of essential facts and circumstances, the defendant failed to comment on these text messages that are, that are at issue in this case. And I think that's in addition to the fact that law enforcement went out and located baby items in the exact location that the defendant described. Um, I think the text messages are the other biggest and most significant piece of strong corroborating evidence of, of essential facts and circumstances in this case. These and that's because these text messages are between the defendant and Jared and they're talking about the events in this case. You can see in the text messages which were admitted um, in this court as an exhibit, the defendant states that he's getting screwed in this case by Kayla killing her baby. He notes that Jared didn't report the crime to law enforcement just like the defendant didn't. And the messages were sent in July of 2018. And I think that's significant because that was well after both of defendant's interviews in this case. Um, and it was well after the events actually occurred. And so I think the significance of those text messages um, certainly cannot be overlooked in, in the analysis when we're looking at whether the corpus delecti rule was satisfied here. Um, an additional uh, indicia of corroboration, and I think something else to point towards the reliability of the confession is the voluntariness of the confession. And the case law again tells us that, tells us that that is something that the court has considered when looking at a, um, a challenge like this, specifically State de Jesus um, versus de Jesus. Similar circumstances to this case, the defendant there was not under arrest at the time of his interview. He traveled to the police department to speak with law enforcement on his own. And I think the similar circumstances here, um, again, point towards the reliability of this confession, the fact that the defendant went voluntarily both, both occasions to speak with law enforcement. He gave very detailed statements, very detailed um, confessions, uh, was very cooperative with law enforcement. And I think that's another thing that bolsters the reliability um, in this particular case. With regards to the second issue, um, the fact that uh, Agent Barnes' testimony was admitted, certainly this evidence was properly admitted. The defendant talked a little bit about uh, arguing that, that this evidence was not relevant under Rule 401. Certainly this evidence was absolutely relevant. Um, as we know, the law tells us that evidence is relevant if, if it has any tendency to make the existence of a fact of consequence to the determination of the action more or less probable than it would be without the evidence. And certainly, that's however slight. 
And the defendant makes much of the fact that there was no quote-unquote connection between this testimony and Kaysen's death. The fact that um, there was no connection, the fact that we don't know who the victim was. And, and that may be true, but that's not required for relevance under the law. Um, again, it, whether it so has let me Let me ask you, so let's assume, just for purposes of a fun hypothetical, that um, the mom was in prison for murder of some completely unrelated person and that for whatever reason she was never prosecuted for the um, death of the child. And they presented the exact same evidence. How is that relevant? Yes, Your Honor. Well, I think the fact that, the fact that there was no mention of the victim, um, certainly, and knowing the underlying facts is, I think, what, what the relevancy turns on in that hypothetical. So, okay. well, in, the, in this, you know, in the courtroom, obviously the defense attorney knew, the prosecutor knew, the judge knew, um, the jury didn't. But we know what they're going to assume. Yes, Your Honor. And I think, frankly, the state could have put that evidence in. I think that they should have. Um, they could have put the judgment into evidence that would have shown that Kaysen was the victim, but the fact that they didn't does not make it irrelevant. Um, as, as Your Honor but stated- But how is it relevant? Assuming, because like I said, for the evidence that we have in this case, we don't know who the victim was. Could have been some completely different person. Could have been 10 years ago. We don't know. Yes, Your Honor. Um, I think- How is it relevant? I think it's relevant because it has the tendency, however slight, to make the fact that Kaysen is dead more or less probable than it would be without the evidence. How? Because as Your Honor stated, I think that it requires the jury to make the inference that she was in prison for killing Kaysen. I think the evidence that- And then how do we not have the confrontation issue? Your Honor, I think that there, there cannot be a confrontation issue because there is no testimonial evidence in question here. That evidence, the evidence, the nature of this evidence is, is, is not testimonial evidence. There are no statements, there are no, um, there are no affidavits, there's no prior testimony. The evidence was in trial, do you know where Kayla Clements is? The state just wants the jury to assume. There is an, there is an inference. I mean, obviously, that's the reason for it. Yes, Your Honor. And, and, but I don't think that any of that, um, as I said, defeats the relevance of it because under the case law, there is such a, such a broad spectrum for relevance. And, and so the fact that it requires an inference, I don't think defeats its relevance. Um, certainly, and, and again, when we're looking at this through the lens of an abusive discretion standard, um, which is what that evidentiary ruling would be uh, analyzed under, I, I don't think that that ruling could be seen as so arbitrary, um, so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision. I think that the relevance there certainly, although it requires an inference to be made by the jury, um, that was for them to make. And so because of that, I think it certainly meets the threshold for relevance under, under Rule 401. But, but even, even assuming, Your Honor, uh, even if the trial court had erred in admitting that testimony, 
Um, certainly, the defendant can't show prejudice under 1440, under 15A, 1443A. Um, I think that certainly the defendant cannot and has not shown a reasonable probability of a different result had that evidence been excluded. I mean, you have to look at the context of the entire record in this case. Even if that one piece of testimony had not come in from Agent Barnes, um, certainly in looking at the multitude of other overwhelming evidence of the defendant's guilt in this case, uh, certainly there's no reasonable probability of a different result had Agent Barnes not testified that Kayla Clements was, was in prison for second degree murder. Um, and I think that's important again in looking at the Rule 403 issue because the defendant made a similar argument. Um, and again, I, certainly the probative value of that evidence is up for debate, um, but, but I don't think that it's substantially outweighed, again, by any danger of unfair prejudice. I mean, there's no way that the defendant could be prejudiced by that, um, especially in light of the rest of the evidence. These two, two very detailed confessions that the defendant made um, and, and all of the corroboration. Um, and similarly, uh, the Confrontation Clause issue, I talked a little bit about it, but obviously um, I, I don't think it's the Confrontation Clause is implicated at all because this isn't testimonial evidence, as I mentioned. Certainly, if there was any error in admitting that testimony, um, that any error there would be harmless, again, beyond a reasonable doubt um, in light of the overwhelming evidence of the defendant's guilt here. And I think going back, it's important to go back, when we think about the evidence of the defendant's guilt, um, all of the items that defendant has talked about, all of the items that he's argued, again, he keeps arguing that, well, all of these facts are irrelevant, the 17 different facts, and here's why each piece of those are irrelevant and it doesn't matter. And But just the sheer fact that there is <laughs> 17 different items that corroborate the defendant's statement and, and more because these these this evidence is all interrelated this evidence corroborates each, each other it there's evidence here to engender the truthfulness of the defendant's confession as a whole um, and I think that's the focus that's the inquiry when we're talking about um, the corpus delecti rule in general um, and the defendant mentioned this but certainly you know some of the policy factors behind this rule um, are that we, we don't want to encourage false confessions and um, we want to ensure thorough law enforcement practices and thorough law enforcement investigation. But I think that's what was done here and I think that that's what all of the evidence shows here in light of the fact that law enforcement was able to um, corroborate so much of the defendant's statements here. And again, I, I don't think it's helpful to talk about whether the playpen was DNA tested. Not only is it not helpful, I don't think it's relevant at all. Um, it, it doesn't matter that the DNA play, the playpen wasn't tested for DNA. It doesn't, um, it, the state is not, again, the state's not required to produce physical remains to show substantial evidence of death. Um, there was substantial evidence of Kaysen's death shown here, albeit circumstantial. Um, but certainly enough to withstand a motion to dismiss, especially in light of the extremely uh, deferential standard that we look at for a motion to dismiss and the fact that the state gets the benefit of all the reasonable inferences drawn from the evidence. The fact that all of the evidence, both competent and incompetent, 
um, that's favorable to the state must be considered under Bullard. And so for all those reasons, um, unless the court has any more questions, um, the trial court properly denied the defendant's corpus delecti challenge and the defendant's motion to dismiss in this case and properly admitted Agent Barnes' testimony. And the state would respectfully request that the court affirm the conviction and find no error. Thank you. Just a couple of follow-up points. Uh, I think the court saw how the state answered the hypothetical. They couldn't. Because there is no relevance. If you don't connect Kayla's second-degree murder conviction, it should have never gotten in. Like what, there's simply no relevance. It isn't. And if there is any relevance, then you create a 403 issue and a confrontation issue. It's only relevant for the inference it's going to draw. Right? They, and if you look at, I mean, even look at ADA Weddle's question. The judge is like, what are you introducing it for? Page 618, judge asks, quote, but I mean, this, is this evidence that she's in prison for second-degree murder? How does that link to the state's proof that this child is dead? And this is what ADA Weddle answered. Quote, well, I think that, I mean, I'm not even getting into the specifics of that. Adia Weddle knew that if he connected that, if he had Agent Barnes say to the jury that she is in prison for second-degree murder, for Kaysen's death, that would, I mean, you just turn the adversarial process on its head. Because you, I mean, you're not producing somebody you can produce, and you're simply having an agent, a law enforcement officer come in and, you know, circumvent every role, evidentiary role, and constitutional role. Quote says it doesn't matter a lot. It seems like the Constitution doesn't matter in this case. The state got to introduce it's all this evidence, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that this was introduced. It doesn't matter that none of this was investigated or connected to the murder. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters to Carl Colt. It matters to the citizens of the state. Right? There is a burden that the state has to prove. And simply saying nothing of this matters is, I mean, disingenuous. It does matter. That should have never been introduced. I've never seen anything like it. Where, and the, and the aggressiveness with which ADA Weddle pursued that issue tells you everything you need to know. He knew he had to get that before the jury. Because again, what, it, I mean, you have to prove at least one of the elements, right, of this charge defense. And one of these elements is the child is dead. What evidence is there? I mean, they, the state repeatedly argued that there's strong corroboration, independent proof. I'm sitting there thinking, what? Law enforcement approached him twice in long interviews, hours long interviews. And again, I've litigated confession cases. It's voluntary, whatever. But if you look at what he's saying, he has no idea if this child's dead. He's assuming the child's dead, right? He's there one weekend, next weekend the child's gone. But keep in mind, one of the elements is that he has to know that the child died of unnatural causes. What evidence is there that he knew that Cason died of unnatural causes? 
What about, independent evidence outside of his statements? What about his text message? I was going to get, I didn't mean to, I didn't want the court to think that I was dodging them. We sort of veered into the uh, second claim as I was going through the first claim. And yeah, the, the, I will admit those text messages, if you look at them at first glance, are not great. But again, you have to keep in mind the timing, right? This is after law enforcement has accused him repeatedly. Like, we're coming after you. We're going to get you, right? You better, you better work with us. So now he's freaking out, and he's thinking that, you know, these people think I know that Kayla killed her baby. But if you read the text messages, they're, they're ambiguous, right? I'm going, like, look at the one he sent on July 16th at 4, uh, 44 p.m. Quote, I'm getting screwed in this case by Kayla killing her baby. I mean, he knows the baby's dead, presumably, because law enforcement's like, we've scoured the earth for this child, and we can't find him. Right? And again, one he sends later that night at 9.03 p.m., uh, if you were really, really a friend, uh, I mean, you consider helping me, like, back when this crime happened. Again, those are his statements. And can his statements corroborate his own statements? Is the question. Right? You still need substantial independent evidence of what he's saying. Kayla killed her baby. What is the substantial independent evidence that Kayla killed her baby or this child is dead? And the state would like to go back to the campsite. But again, there's nothing at that campsite that was tied to Kayla or the killing. Like, Your Honor asked, like, how does a playpen? Right? The play, it's a playpen. Is it relevant? It has some relevance, and I admit that in my briefing, but again, Sandy, if you look at what she testified to, that is not the playpen. Right? That is not the playpen. And they didn't even ask Mr. Colt if that was the playpen. He saw the playpen, and again, the, the state harped on that. Oh, Mr. Colt saw the playpen, he described the playpen, he saw a case in the playpen. Did they ever take the playpen back to Mr. Colt and say, is this the playpen? No, never ask a question you don't want to know what the answer to. That's what it, that's what it is. They could have had it tested. Playpen is a great object to have it tested. And the state's like, well, that doesn't matter. It does matter. Under Parker, strong corroboration. That would be strong corroboration. If you link that with DNA, I'm not here arguing with you guys. <laughs> I'm not. Or like Jose or Sandy said, you know what, that's it. Here's why that's it. I know for a fact that's it. Nobody, there's no testimony like that. It's just all innuendo and inference. That's not strong corroboration. That's just assuming. And that's what, I'm arguing that because that's what Parker says you need to argue. I'm not making this out of whole cloth. I'm saying that's what the court, the Supreme Court has said when the state's case is built on the defendant's state. And again, this is ADA Weddle's own doing. He could have brought in Kayla. He's created this problem for himself. He simply could have had her testify. She had no right to remain silent anymore by pleading guilty. But he knew that if he put her on the stand, Mr. Colt would have had a right to confront her. And his trial attorney I'll be honest, his trial attorney was one of the better trial attorneys I've read. I get a lot of appeals here, and that he did a tremendous job preserving issues, 
and really challenging the state's case. And, you know, ADA Weddle probably knew that, but if he put Kayla on the stand, you're going to raise reasonable doubt as to a critical issue of whether even Mr. Colt knew about it. Right? There's your corroboration. Go talk to Philip. Where's Philip? Where's Jared? Jared, bring him in. None of these witnesses testified. And all they're relying on is Mr. Colt's statement. And again, I go through each fact simply because that's what Mr. Weddle did. And you can look at them in the collective, and I still believe they don't meet the standard under Parker because there's no strong corroboration. They're simply pointing to, oh, he drove a car at this point. He hung out with Jared at this point. His parents moved to, Jared's parents moved to Florida. But again, how does that all tie back to the commission of the crime? Can you point us to any precedent um, to support your argument that the testimony regarding one being convicted and in prison constitutes some sort of testimonial evidence against defendant? Under state law, I would say, I, I did not come across a case in North Carolina for, for the court's I mean, own transparency. Fourth Circuit? Uh, what, or even that, because it's such a, it becomes a confrontation clause issue if you admit there's relevance. There's relevance because it's being introduced because, for the fact that she pled guilty. And that, it's, it, how do you want to say it? It's sort of interconnected. Like if, you're, if it's not relevant, it's a 401 issue. If it is relevant, now it's relevant only because you're introducing it for an incriminating inference. And to create a confrontation issue that it has to be testimonial. Yeah, it, it's testimonial. It testimonial? Yes. Yeah, it's testimonial. The inference it's drawn is testimonial, I guess is my argument, is ADA Weddle knew that by mentioning this and not really fleshing out who it's connected to, the jury would automatically infer an incriminating issue or an incriminating fact. And under Crawford and, you know, the uh, Crawford's progeny, yes, it's generally somebody coming in and specifically saying that an incriminating fact, right, that's testimonial. Here, you know, the way it was presented and the inference that was drawn, I think you can argue in a novel way, I agree, that it does create a confrontation issue. You're, you're preventing Mr. Colt from challenging, right, that inference by not producing the witness who was creating that inference. And my, I think I'm over my time. <laughs> but I would simply ask the court to oh, yeah. uh, grant a new trial based on those two claims. And I appreciate you listening to me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hear your arguments. And uh, as I mentioned before, we're going to take a brief recess so we can switch out our panels.